Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look, and I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, some of the conversations you'll hear center on demand and supply. Demand on the supply chain that hasn't let up. But disruptions on the West Coast are coming around to benefit the Port of Savannah and Atlanta. So we'll take a deeper dive into how Georgia is doing as this gridlock supply chain continues. Also, there's funding for a project at Agnes Scott College, which looks to document the school's and the community's racial history. and also includes research opportunities for students. Those conversations and more are coming up. But first this, a Georgia Senate committee met this morning. The reason? To discuss the potential legislative measures that might be beneficial to local development authorities. Now, they're called the Senate Development Authorities and Downtown Development Authority Study Committee, and this actually came out of a Senate resolution. So lawmakers asked a lot of questions related to how these authorities operate within Georgia, and especially as it relates to maintaining information, funding, and tax incentives. These questions were asked of representatives from the Georgia Department of Community Affairs, Wondering how all this works. Now, here's Republican Senator Jeff Mullis asking and pretty much answering his own question. Now, isn't it true that when a deal is done, that the financial obligations of the county or the authority has a public meeting to announce all that? The answer would be yes. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) They all do. As part of the Constitution. And I hope from this committee meeting that we keep Georgia as the number one place to do business. And my fear is we're going to be doing some meddling that will take us off that status. So I'm here to make sure that doesn't happen. Now, prior to today's committee meeting, Senator Max Burns has said in an announcement that, quote, the committee would explore ways we can maximize the benefit brought to our communities by local development authorities, while also ensuring proper safeguards are in place to protect taxpayers from abuse. In other news, a judge has declined to squash the subpoenas of 11, quote, fake electors who were targets of a Fulton County special grand jury, as we hear from WABE politics reporter Sam Greenglass. Fulton County Superior Court Judge Robert McBurney is overseeing the special grand jury. It's investigating whether former President Trump and his allies committed crimes when they tried to overturn the 2020 election results. At the same hearing, lawyers for State Senator Burt Jones, another fake elector who was a target of the investigation, argued why the court should disqualify Fulton County District Attorney Fawnie Willis from conducting the probe. Willis held a fundraiser for Jones's opponent in the race for lieutenant governor, Democrat Charlie Bailey. Judge McBurney said he will issue a written order later on that motion, though he appeared skeptical of the legal grounds for disqualifying Willis. He also said he would be, quote, shocked if the grand jury's final report is completed before Election Day. Sam Greenglass, WABE News. 
Georgia's Department of Revenue says it's refining its process as it relates to state taxes. Now that the state's new abortion law is in effect, the six-week abortion ban also extends full legal rights to a fetus, which means it can be claimed as a dependent on state taxes. That could mean that any pregnant woman with a due date of next year could add a dependent to the state income tax form for 2022. The Revenue Department says details will be released soon. Meanwhile, Georgia's status as a destination for abortion access in the southeast is likely to change now that the state's restrictive ban is in effect. And we hear more from Jess Mador. Georgia's now among the states with the most restrictive laws in the country, banning most abortions after six weeks of pregnancy. The newly enacted ban means people seeking an elective abortion in the state will be forced to travel long distances for the procedure. So will thousands of patients from other, even more restrictive nearby states who might have traveled to Georgia for treatment. In the southeast, only Florida and North Carolina offer abortions after six weeks from conception. That's before most people even know they're pregnant. In North Carolina, the procedure is permitted up to fetal viability at around 24 weeks, and Florida allows it up to 15 weeks. Georgia's abortion law allows for some exceptions, including for miscarriage and ectopic pregnancy. Jess Mador, WABE News. And there are only about 14 verified providers that offer abortions among other medical services here in Georgia. Kwajalein Jackson is the executive director of the Feminist Women's Health Center. She joins me now as we continue this coverage based on what happened this week. Ms. Jackson, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for the invitation, Rose. And also, we should know we've had a lot of questions from listeners as well, but I want to begin with this. Uh, Obviously, the week's ruling from the appeals court was something that folks did expect. I'm wondering what questions you all have been getting from the public and from patients since all of this has, has come online. Certainly many people are afraid and confused and frustrated by the unexpected um, lifting of the injunction. We have had to call many of our patients who had previously scheduled appointments and encourage them to make appointments in other places um, if we believe that they were beyond the limit where we could treat them. But oftentimes people just want to know whether they can still come or where they should go next. That was my next question. And it was, have you all had to cancel, turn away appointments due to the stage in in pregnancy for the individual, for your client, for the Every person um, who's answering calls for our clinic is advising people um, verbally that we cannot perform an abortion um, if cardiac activity is detected with, again, very limited exceptions. So we are encouraging people if they are very early in pregnancy or they suspect based on their information about their menstrual cycles, Um, are very early in pregnancy to come in and have that confirmed via ultrasound. But if based on the information folks have about when their last cycle was, we believe that they are beyond that threshold. We're trying to connect them with abortion funds or other nearby clinics where they can travel to get care. As you know, Georgia's law, there are some exceptions. Um, there, are limit, there are some limited exceptions, of course, to save the person's life, to prevent serious risk to the pregnant person's physical health. Um, if the pregnancy is a result of rape or incest and if a police report has been filed, 
Do you all have to verify all of this, Ms. Jackson? We have been trying to make sure that we have very clear and well-documented information included in every patient's chart um, so that we can comply with the um, with all of the things that have been outlined in the HB 481 language. Um, this is burdensome for many patients, and this has also required us to update some of our intake paperwork um, just so that we can make sure that we have documentation that we are adhering to the new mandate. I'm curious, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, you all have, usually there's a counseling session with the patient before there's a further discussion about any type of other services that you all provide, especially if it's going to be an abortion, correct? We both counsel people um, or educate people on the phone when they first make their appointment. We give them both information about what to expect, as well as the state mandated information that's included in the Women's Right to Know Act. All of that happens on the phone 24 hours before they come in. But in addition, when they arrive for their appointment, we do have one-on-one -on -one time with each patient to do informed consent, to go through their health history, to re-explain what they can expect from their procedure, to make sure that if they need additional adjacent services, that we can connect them with referral networks um, and make sure that they feel prepared and cared for before they go in for their termination. Ms. Jackson, are there accounts where you all have a minor who comes with a parent or some type of or, or caregiver that also seeking services? We do on occasion see minor patients. The majority of the minor patients that we see do come in with a parent or guardian. There are occasions where a minor um, is unable to um, give notice to a parent or guardian, and then they would have to go through a judicial bypass process. With the new parameters around the time um, with which someone has to seek abortion care in Georgia, that's a very narrow window for someone to also go through a legal process to avoid having to um, notify a parent or guardian. So this certainly does complicate the ability for minor patients who don't have um, a safe parent or guardian who can um, support their decision. What conversations can you talk about in terms of with your staff since all of this has happened? Can you talk about the state of your the mental health, the emotional state of your staff right now? From the time of the Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health decision, um, and honestly, from the time of the leaked opinion earlier in May, um, it has been a very emotional period for our staff. Um, in particular, as the states around us eliminated abortion access, as you mentioned um, in your introduction, Georgia had been a respite in the Southeast for many other folks seeking abortion care who were not able to receive it where they live. And while we are grateful um, and fortunate that we were able to help to meet that need, the overwhelm, the number of people who were calling, the number of um, people who were seeking care that was beyond our capacity 
was also really heartbreaking for a lot of our staff. And now we have had to adjust very, very quickly and respond to people, again, who are angry, who are frustrated, who are scared, and disappoint them one more time. So for those folks who are seeking an abortion and they have they don't meet any of the exceptions and it's beyond six weeks, again, what are you telling them? Often our first step is to try to connect them with local abortion funds. We are in deep collaboration with Access Reproductive Care Southeast or ARC Southeast um, that is helping patients navigate from six Southeastern states. Um, In addition to that, we're encouraging people to use resources like abortionfinder.org or I need an A dot com, that those are resources that have been regularly updated in um, as the laws continue to change to help people find a clinic that's close to them. Ms. Jackson, what other services, medical service do you all, medical services do you all provide at the women's, at the Feminist Women's Center here? So in addition to abortion care, we offer comprehensive reproductive health care. So that's um, gynecological care, that's trans services, that's contraceptive services, that's STI testing and treatment. Um, and we are working to continue to expand the kinds of reproductive health care that we can offer to our communities. We will not stop providing abortion care, but we also want to make sure our communities have everything that they need to thrive. As we wrap up, As the executive director, how are you going to ensure, though, that this center is following the mandates and the provisions in the new law? Is there a checks and balances system as a state? And I know it just happened this week, but have you all been given any guideline in terms of reporting information or do you have to? I have not yet received any updated information from the Department of Community Health or the Department of Public Health regarding how we should adapt our reporting practices. But we are working with um, counsel from the Center for Reproductive Rights who are helping us to really deeply understand the language of the law and adapt that to our internal practices and protocols. Are are there some specific mandates and provisions that you yourself just really need some clarity on that you can talk about here? Um, I will just say that often um, legislation is not written with um, medical expertise. Um, And so sometimes translating um, political language Mm -hmm. into medically accurate terms can be challenging. And so making sure that we are clear on exactly what is meant by all of the definitions that are included in the bill so that we can make sure that our forms are capturing that information accurately. I'm curious, do you have concerns for the personal safety of yourself or your staff as well? Abortion provision has always been under significant threat. We have seen protester activity escalate over the past several months. Um, So I have very deep concern for the well-being of my staff, of my providers, and of my patients. We're also certainly concerned about the ways that this legislation could lead to criminal prosecution. 
because there is not a lot of clarity around the personhood provision that is included in Mm -hmm. the bill. Kwanjalyn Jackson is the executive director of the Feminist Women's Health Center here in our region. Ms. Jackson, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. It's always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. As always, I'm Rose Scott. You may remember earlier in the week I had a conversation with Jamie Porges. He's the co-founder and CEO of Radiance Solar, headquartered right here in Georgia. Is it accurate to say then that you all are behind on projects? Uh, We are. Um, You know, there are delays in shipping. And um, it's, uh, you know, I like to say that the, the moratorium on tariffs has helped, you know, um, some of the damage was already done, and we're we're going to re- be recovering from that for a little while. But it was it was welcome news. Um, but yeah, we're going to be playing catch up, and the industry will be playing catch up for the next eighteen months. Um, so it's to 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 start and then stop the process all over again. It will take eighteen months to to two years to to get back to where we were. Well, and as we all should know by now, it's not just the solar industry. Nearly every manufacturing sector, goods and services industry is somehow impacted by the ongoing supply chain. How about another word? Chaos. But here's some good news. Disruptions on the West Coast are coming around to benefit the Port of Savannah and even Atlanta. So, yeah, that's some good news. However, with just a couple of months away from heading to the biggest spending time of the year, What's the outlook? Well, John Haber returns to Closer Look to review the current pressures on the supply chain and hopefully offer some more good news. No pressure, John. (laughs) John Haber is now Chief Strategy Officer for Transportation Inside Holding Company. It's been a minute, but let's welcome him back. What a different chapter in life. How you doing, John? We're in a different chapter, Rose. It's great to see you, and thanks for having me back on the show. Uh, what does a Chief Strategy Officer for Transportation Inside Holding Company do? I kind of think I know, but... Uh, I have responsibility for our consulting business. So we've got a very large consulting business. I own our strategic accounts. I own our channel partnerships. I own strategic partnerships. And I also have our indirect sourcing group, which is a separate business uh, that we purchased a number of years ago to help companies buy supplies and other items, MRO equipment, things like that. Well, how come you haven't fixed this supply chain gridlock? You've been coming on this show for, what, three years now, and you haven't fixed it, John? Hey, we are helping (laughs) fix the supply chain. We just rolled out a new digital platform called Beyond. Uh And uh, this platform is fantastic. It is really helping shippers 
as well as carriers uh, manage capacity and manage their shipments and provide visibility from what we call the port to the porch. All right, we're going to talk about that, but I want to begin our conversation with a personal story. Okay, are you ready for me? I'm ready. Are listeners ready? Somebody I know and love dearly, me, uh, yesterday went to a neighborhood spirit store to find my favorite beverage, and it was out of stock, except for one large <laughs> bottle, which I didn't need the big bottle, just one. And I asked, I said, hey, you know, where is the smaller? And I was told, well, due to supply, to use that word, due to the supply chain issues, then I found out maybe perhaps it's in the back, but they didn't want to put it out because they need it for the weekend in case the other shipment doesn't get in. So they want people like me who come in the middle of the week to buy the bigger bottle. Supply chains. Basically, tequila demand is so high, I've just given it away, that it's leading to supply constraints, John Haber. Can you fix this? There's a lot of people drowning their sorrows with tequila, right? <laughs> That's not what I was doing. <laughs> Uh, we're seeing this. It's not just tequila. Yeah. I was just spoke at a conference earlier this week. Uh, it was a, a, a printing conference, and everyone is talking about they cannot find paper. There is a huge paper shortage of all kinds mm-hmm. in the U.S., and it's we a major even, problem. And we haven't been hearing about it. I mean, I, you heard the clip I played. I had the conversation with Jamie Porches about the solar. But now, paper. Wow. Paper. Baby formula, of course, yeah. semiconductor chips. Yeah, it's across all different industries, and uh, even when you can find product inventory, it's costing a lot more these days well, in most we, cases. We talked about that, so let's back up because when you started coming on the show to talk about all of this, and again, you did say, Rose, it could take some time. It could take two years. You heard Jamie say that the industry, the solar industry. They're behind 12 to 18 months projects. It could take that long to turn all this around. You agree with that statement for him? Uh, I do. I absolutely do agree. I Every time we get some good news, something else seems to happen. Uh, we're, we're turning things around, and then you have war break out mm-hmm. in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And you see what that's doing to natural gas. Sure. Russia shut off Europe, and... Uh, the price of energy in Europe is a major problem. It's having a huge impact on manufacturing. I don't think people realized until this the issue with Ukraine and Russia with grain. Grain is another huge uh, area. That was a of shock concern. to a lot of folks. Yes. Well, John, when we talk about strategies in and and in logistics, because you're a logistics guy, that that is your wheelhouse. So to that's speak. right. That's your jam, as the kids say. Uh, it's my groove. <laughs> I'll look at you. What are we, Generation X here? It's <laughs> my group. Uh, but when we talk about solutions or potential solutions for this supply chain disruption that's been happening for now, what, going on three years, is there really one? I mean, where do you begin? I mean, I know you have some news about the port. We'll get to that in a moment. Yeah. But, you know. Well, uh, our reliance on imports has created a lot of these problems. Uh we need to move more manufacturing over back to North America. I've heard that. We yeah. need to have our products. We need to have our products made here in the United States, or in Mexico or Canada, uh, so that they're not having to be shipped from Asia. Uh, that's creating a lot of the problem. Folks have said that, and yes. we may all agree that that is a long-term solution. 
you know, that's also, again, and, and this word that people keep throwing at me, or two words, political will, will hopefully make it happen. But for the immediate, but immediate is, is really, depending on whom you ask, this has been going on for a few years, so immediate is what? Yeah. I mean, that, me- what is an immediate solution look like, John? The immediate solution is uh, you really have to start diversifying. Uh, you can't just have one supplier. You've got to have multiple suppliers across different geographies. You have to have contingency plans. You have to have risk management strategies. One of the biggest problems that happened when COVID hit, the pandemic hit, we did not have contingency plans. We didn't have backup strategies. Mm-hmm. And it's still being exposed two years later. The infrastructure in the United States is also a major problem because the highways and just we haven't invested uh, in our infrastructure and that impacts trucking and it impacts Mm -hmm. the supply chain. And so the years of neglect, they're frankly coming back to bite us right now and you can't fix things overnight. But you really need to be paying attention to what's going on here in the short term and you need to be looking at all your different options. You may have to pay a little bit more to get the supply and product, but it's better than not having it at all. Well, can you tell listeners what those options may be? For example, let's let's just use little old me, you know, sure. I'm a consumer. I go grocery shopping. I look at my bill. I see that it's increased, you know, from last month. What I can't do anything. Maybe my local neighborhood grocery store. If you had to advise them, you said look at all the other options. What other options? Maybe try buying more local, but. That's a big corporation. If you're a small, maybe mom and pop shop, you can look at maybe buying more local or in-state. But not every business can adopt that strategy that you're talking about in terms of, you know, a strategic plan. Yeah. Uh, And and when you're talking about groceries uh, in particular, uh, the price, you know, you're talking about commodities in Mm -hmm. a lot of cases. And the cost of the commodities have gone up so much that, uh, there's you can't prevent uh, costs going up for the consumer. But when you do look at different options, I mean, look at you have to take a look at what you can pay online. I mean, look at your different options. There's a lot of different places you can purchase and there's mm-hmm. ways that you can do it. Uh, and you know going just going to one spot and accepting what you're paying, you got to give it a little more diligence these days and, and see if you can find better options. Uh, they're not everywhere doesn't charge the same mm-hmm. price for the same goods. You and I, every year we talk about the holiday shopping season, you know, once September gets here and, we, and then my goodness, folks are getting ready for Halloween right now. Some of y'all just, okay. I'm not judging. We always talk about, you tell people on this program, start making your list now and start looking at if you're going to order online or if you're going to try to get these gifts, particularly if you are ordering online, because there is going to be a backlog. So now looking into the future, the John Haber, you know, crystal ball for Christmas shopping, you telling folks to do what? I, I'm changing my tune this year a little bit, Rose. Really? Uh, we're expecting uh, the peak season shipping problems to be lighter than the last couple of years. Is that due to the economy? Uh, it's, it's due to a number of things. People are, are shopping earlier. Uh, people have learned uh, from the past. And so people are shopping earlier. They're not waiting to the last minute like they did historically. So they don't care about deals then? The deals are coming earlier. 
Deals are coming earlier. In fact, I'm, Amazon just had a two-day Prime Day. Yes, they did. Uh, sold over 300 million items. Uh, Target and Walmart joined in as well. Uh, and so you're having massive promotions here at the end of July. So uh, companies have a ton of inventory on hand right now. But uh, some of our large retail customers have told the UPSs and the FedExes they're not going to need as much capacity during this peak season. We're expecting it to uh, run more smoothly. We are anticipating problems during peak Mm -hmm. season, though. There's a lot of things going on. There's a big union negotiation going on Mm -hmm. the West Coast port. That's been great for Georgia. It's driving volume. Let's talk about that. To the Georgia ports. Right now, there are almost uh, 260,000 container equivalents destined for the Savannah port. That's the most ever in history uh, as far as containers headed to the port of Savannah right now. A lot of that is because... uh, the issues on the West Coast is driving uh, freight to the East Coast, and Savannah's uh, one of the recipients. And Savannah uh, has been doing a lot and investing a lot to build out capacity to handle these large increases. So they've got a lot more warehouse space. In fact, they're also uh, partnering with other states, North Carolina, uh, Virginia, Florida, uh, for excess overflow inventory and capacity. That is great news for Georgia. It's really great news for Georgia. Well, I make the folks down at the Capitol very, very happy. Absolutely. Uh, (laughs) Georgia is still a great place to do business, as you heard earlier on the show. Number one place to do business in the U.S., and we want to keep it that way. That's a whole other segment, John. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I was listening to that earlier. (laughs) I know you were. (laughs) That's a whole other segment. But I do want to focus on that because... That is great news for Georgia's economy, yeah. obviously, but then for folks on the West Coast, I mean, you don't want anybody to suffer. Obviously, when it comes to labor issues and, and all that, we want everyone to get what they deserve, obviously. But for some states in this nation, are we going to see that their economy might be boosted because other areas are suffering? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. As a matter of fact, uh, right now, the port in Oakland is essentially shut down due to trucker protests over AB5 which is the law that passed in California mm-hmm. regarding co- contractor status versus employee status. Mm-hmm. The drivers are uh, have bl- basically blocked the port. You can't get anything out of the port. And so that's, people are going to not want to s- ship to the, the Oakland port oh, if you can't oh. get your goods out of there. What is your outlook then for this time next year? And we're having this conversation. I I... I hate to say that some of this is the new norm, but it looks like it is. It looks like we're going to have congestion. It looks like uh, we're going to continue to have problems in the supply chain. We are seeing improvement. For instance, the number of vessels that are uh, parked outside the West Coast ports, it was over 100 vessels at one point. Mm Uh, you're, we're not seeing that right now. We are seeing major problems, though, with, with uh, chassis equipment to get the containers out of the ports. We're seeing major problems with labor. I mean, uh, the labor numbers are starting to tweak up. Mm-hmm. I just saw uh, the, the the jobless claims are, are, are moving up a little mm-hmm. bit in the right direction, but finding labor is really hard, and that has a huge impact on the supply chain. You can't find enough workers to work in the warehouses. But economists are fussing about whether or not you know we will be headed into this 
recession. That's the R word that no one likes to hear. Uh, the, the National Retail Federation says that we're not in a recession and they're not forecasting a recession uh, for the remainder of this year. A, a lot of people already think that we're in a recession. Well, uh, but, you know, John, listen, you've had this conversation before. You know, we all have different lived experiences. And, you know, what all this means to one person who lives in a certain zip code means something totally different to another person in another zip code. So, you know. Or even maybe next door. <laughs> maybe next door. So, you know, I think analysts sometimes lose sight of that, you know. They do. And uh, the National Retail Federation doesn't want there to be a recession. And so not. they're going to be uh, more focused on communicating that there's not a recession because they want consumers to spend and so there's a lot of different uh, opinions. Nobody has a crystal ball. There's no doubt, though, that uh, inflation is here. The numbers uh, do not lie. Uh, up over 9%. Mm -hmm. That's hit people in the pocket. Absolutely. I mean, the average price the family is spending on groceries a month is $500 higher right now than it was historically. And so uh, the less money to spend because of higher prices, that impacts the overall economy. Absolutely. And I want to support all my neighborhood, you know, businesses, big and small. So, Well, people are still buying on Amazon, so that's great news. And we're expecting uh, sales to go up. So even though prices are going up. But you can't get your favorite tequila on Amazon. You can't, can't get it. your favorite tequila. That's why you go to your local neighborhood store. You can't get it in because <laughs> it's not made here. <laughs> John Haber, Chief Strategy Officer for Transportation Inside Holding Company. John, it's so great to have you back and talking about this stuff. You make it sound easy in a sense, but also you, you explain it very well to our listeners and they really enjoy it because I get the emails. Hey, I love being on your show. It's always great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it, John. Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. You all know, in 2020, with the murders of Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd, there were all these conversations centered around racial reckoning. You know, all those conversations began to happen, and there were pledges of diversity and equity and inclusion. All those type of pledges soared as you know, corporations, businesses, and even institutions of higher learning either ramped up or implemented new initiatives centered around race or acknowledging some issues with race or, quite frankly, racism in the past. And it continues. And, but we're seeing more and more sort of different and various initiatives that are coming online. For example, Agnes Scott College, with the help of a grant from the Mellon Foundation, will fund its Acknowledging Our Past, Acting Now for a Transform Future project. It's a two-part initiative that's, as the institution sees it, quote, designed to elevate the lives of black, indigenous, and people of color, artisans and workers who built Agnes Scott's campus and the city of Decatur. So, of course, we wanted to know more. So let's welcome in Agnes Scott President Leo Cadia Zach. She returns to the program. And Dr. Eve Rose Porcina, the college's vice president for diversity, equity and inclusion and project lead for the Mellon proposal. Thank you both for taking the time. I appreciate it. 
Thank you so much, Rose. It's a delight to be back with you. And thank you for addressing this very important topic. Well, we wanted to know more, but I just want to get your thoughts. I'll start with you, uh, Madam President, before we dive into the program. What are your thoughts on, on the year of 2020 and everyone talking about, you know, for some that this nation was, was going to have some type of racial reckoning? And and I know I've had this conversation with different people. So depending on whom you ask, you'll get a different answer. But what do you make of that? It, it, is this where we are right now? Are we still in this racial reckoning, you think? Well, I was going to say it's one of the things that Agnes Scott was focused on before 2020, but it's also something that you can never focus on enough. And I think it is something that has to continue, that it was a beginning. Um, there probably will never be an end. And it's something that we have to continue to address, which is exactly what this grant is about and the work that Dr. Prasina has been leading at Agnes Scott. Dr. Prasina, I'll come over to you then. What are your thoughts then on this whole notion of what racial reckoning looks like. Thanks for having us. Um, yeah, I think when you when you think about 2020, what I call it is usually when this country is all of a sudden coming up face to face with things that have been happening in terms of racial injustice and racial um, issues that have been, you know, lingering, lingering in this country for, for years and for decades, okay, for centuries, really. Mm-hmm. And so 2020 was just putting the light on it. That's how I see 2020. And president is right we dig back into our work and we 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 find out where we what we were doing how how we were doing and how we can improve on it which i think how you started on this conversation is really a lot of higher higher educational institutions started to do this but for us at agnes we've always put social justice at the center Mm -hmm. of our curriculum of our program and so what we did is to say okay how can we do more not just at Agnes, but also in the community where Agnes God operates. That's what that year meant for me. So when we talk about this, you all are acknowledging our past, acting now for a transformed future. Did you have this project in mind and you applied for the grant or with the grant you're able to sort of start from grassroots or, or so to sense for, for what you want to do with this? How did this come about? Well, it actually came about with a small Mellon grant that we received. And with that grant, what we wanted to do was to research the BIPOC who contributed to the building of the college. As you can imagine, we know who the philanthropists were um, when the college was founded. We know who the spiritual leaders were. But we wanted to know who are the other people who are involved, Mm -hmm. the craftsmen, the people who really contributed to the college and built it. And so with that, we began to research who was responsible for actually doing the work on the college. And we came across this amazing individual, Samuel Harper, who was a craftsman who helped to build the steeple, our bell tower, the most iconic thing on our campus, and frankly, in Decatur. Mm -hmm. And what we learned is not just about Agnes Scott, but we learned about the community. Samuel Harper married Lena Oliver, who was a prominent um, daughter of of African-American leader in the Decatur community. As a matter of fact, there was a street named for him. Mm -hmm. However, that street is now called Commerce Drive. The history of many of the people who were involved, who've lived in Decatur, who built the buildings, the, the wonderful bell towers that are seen everywhere in Decatur, you don't see their names anymore. They're not recognized anymore. So what we wanted to do is be able to to acknowledge those individuals. 
We refer to them as our hidden founders. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're hidden and almost to the point of being erased. And we want to be sure that we work with the community to bring them forward um, and to be sure that their names are known. Dr. Porcino, let me ask you this based on then what President Zach has said, then how do you all plan to do that? Is it just more than maybe having a, a plaque or, or some type of uh, memorial uh, or you know service for, for them? What does this look like when you want to highlight and, and profile them as being part of the institution that, that Agnes Scott has grown in today? A number of ways. Um, let me say, so our ultimate goal is that this project, we are sponsoring a number of programs that we hope will have a lasting impact on the college curriculum, on student success, professional success, and really on testing in terms of scientific testing and re, redefining what the role of colleges can be in dismantling the tools that perpetuate entrenched ingrained racism mm-hmm. in a community. So that's what we hope to do. That's the goal, the whole the goal and how we do this. I mean, I'll give you a simple one example. There are many, many ways, obviously, in terms of the curriculum, right? Faculty and students will be doing mentored research on race, place, decatur, which is that is, and the invisible or erased labor of the BIPOC people, mm-hmm. who are black, indigenous people of color who were here helping to build the campus and the city. So they'll do this research and then, you know, they will incorporate what they learn not only for the students, but also into the curriculum, into classes, into our teaching, so that you know about our signature program, Summit, Mm -hmm. so that Summit can really integrate the local movements that make up the global world. So that's how we see, thereby really deepening our work on decolonizing the curriculum, which we started, we've been doing for a few years now. So when we find people like Samuel Harper, who were here more than 100 years ago, he met his wife near the campus, back then when we find them and we tell their story in our teaching and there are many more to be discovered, our students then just really have a learn the new history, not the new history, but the true history, right? Mm-hmm. Those people who've been erased. So that's kind of one way of doing that in the curriculum. Of course, there's a lot of other programs we are doing in the community and I'm just going to just keep going. <laughs> well, I, well I, I'm going to come back to you because I have a question for President Zach. As you were discovering these individuals, what was going through your mind? that we have to do something about it. Um, that, you know, as I mentioned, we're aware of some of the founders, but what we really need to do is to ensure that we know who the other individuals are and that they have to be highlighted. And they should have been highlighted sooner, of course, but it's in the, it's never too late. Um, one of the, you know, the two things we also were trying to do, one is to actually raise the funds to restore and renovate that bell tower Mm -hmm. and to name it for Samuel Harper. So we're in the process of renovating the building. I'd love for that to be the Samuel Harper bell tower that's seen on Agnes Scott's campus, seen across Decatur, um, that brings back his name and he's acknowledged for what he's done in our community along with other artisans and workers who helped create our college. Dr. Porcina, for some listening to this and they say this is a start and for others they say, well, can you do more? What is your hope then that this, these two initiatives right now with this grant can help build upon what you all want to continue to do in the future? And, and, you, and you both are correct. And, that, and I've done this before because I've, I've covered it. Agnes Scott has led a lot of initiatives around diversity, equity and inclusion. Uh, 
but you all want to do more. How will these two initiatives be sort of a, a spark for the future here? Yeah, so that's a really great question because part of it is, another part of this is also collecting today's stories, right? There are people, amazing people in our community who are doing amazing work that, you know, we don't hear about, right? And so part of the work is collecting. Our goal is what we call in working with our community partners to collect 200 stories of today's people who are doing amazing work in time for Decatur's 200th anniversary. Mm -hmm. So part of the reason the grant is also called about Transform Future, we also don't want those who are here today to be erased 100 years from now. And so we're looking at the past, but we're also collecting today's stories. What is going to be different, I think, is the way we are institutionalizing it. So, for example, we will create markers and have a digital working tool of those people, uh, the to-be-discovered, that's what I call them, early BIPOCs, mm -hmm. uh, and just really superimposing them on, you know, with stories of native, colonialism, white settlers, enslavement, reconstruction, the long civil rights movement. So really, if you think, look at a map, we would put these stories on there so they really stay in history and our students can learn about them as well. And President Zach, with these initiatives, your hope what this means, and you can't you know, predict this, but what you hope this means for current students, future students, and the message you're sending to the Agnes Scott community is that, you know, this map, that everyone matters, um, that everyone should be named, that they should be recognized for what they do, and that we are going to help one, bring back the history, but also that should be part of us going forward. We should always acknowledge everyone who's been involved in the creation of our college and educating our students and being members of our community. And Dr. Persina, so what is the first phase of this? You all got to, what is it, $750,000? I'm sure you would like more. I mean, what institution doesn't want more more funding? But where do you begin with this money, and what's that first phase of this? So first phase is uh, really doing the mentored research and collecting the stories. The 750 is for a three-year. It's on a three-year phase. Also, right away, we are celebrating our progress. We are collaborating with community partners, such as the Beacon Hill Black Alliance for Human Rights, the mm -hmm. Better Together Advisory Board, to really highlight today's and uplift today's African culture and African businesses and their contributions. For example, there's a Pan-African Festival in August. So that and so that, those, those are happening and those will happen, but also really putting the team together. This is really a collaborative project. And so we want all our partners in place um, and the, you know, to just really design. But the first phase is the lead historian will be designing the, the research on how we bring in our students into the communities because the students are going to the nursing homes, to the markets, to every places to really find the people and do those interviews, yeah. President Zach, when you look at your student body in terms of its diversity, in terms of its racial and ethnic background, I think you all are, or makeup, excuse me, I think you all right now are probably around around 35 percent in terms of black or, Af or students that identify as black or African-American. Um, and then you have a mixture of other ethnicities. And are, are you, would you like to see some increases, though, in some specific populations there for your student college, for your student body? No, absolutely. And, you know, you're exactly right um, with respect to the makeup of our campus. We're 60% students of color um, on our campus. And one of the things that's very important for us to reflect Georgia, where we're from. So, of course, we'd like to increase the number of African-American students um, at Agnes Scott. But I think one of the things that's so important is the diversity. 
-hmm. that there is no ethnic, racial, or socioeconomic majority on our campus. And we are known as one of the most diverse liberal arts colleges in the country. Mm -hmm. So it's bringing together people of different backgrounds, also socioeconomic backgrounds, to be able to live, work, play, and learn together. All right. The Acadio Zach, she's the president of Agnes Scott College. I've also been in conversation with Dr. Eve Rose Persina, the college's vice president for diversity, equity, and inclusion. And we're talking about what they're going to do now with some funding from the Mellon Foundation. It's called Acknowledging Our Past, Acting Now for a Transformed Future. We'll have a link from our website to theirs for those that want more information about this. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Good conversation. Rose, thank you so much. We're so happy to have you in our community. Thank you. Thank you. And that will be it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson, and Daniel Rezell, who was also our engineer all this week. And our regular engineer is Kevin Rinker. Our summer intern is Lennox Johnson. Proudly representing Mount Holyoke College. I've been instructed to say that every time. A reminder, let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's always online, wabe.org slash Closer Look. And, of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. So you can subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. You can also check out City Lights. You can also check out Political Breakfast, all kind of our tech podcast. There's all kinds of good stuff up there. So, yes, subscribe. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.